Well, you know that the OHL podcast is all about our collections of stories from the players, the managers, the coaches, the officials that were a part of the game. And that is no different with our guest today who started writing about those stories. And then maybe that book idea took a little bit of a different direction. Uh, Justin Davis, the guest, the book is called Conflicted Stars, an average player's journey to the NHL. So let me just get this straight, Justin. Memorial Cup champion, all-time points leader at Western, and a fourth rounder to the show. We're going to call this average. Is that what we're doing? Well, I I think sometimes uh, hockey humbles you pretty quick. So to say anything more is is tough to say. But when I when I look back at some of the things I accomplished, sometimes it's uh, a little surreal. So I I said average for the maybe junior world. We'll call it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the book itself, it's not, I don't think, the book you intended to write. So how did Conflicted Scars come about? Yeah, it's a great question. I uh, About four years ago or three years ago, I was on uh, short-term disability. I was having some back issues and uh, um, some post-concussion issues. Um, so I was going to shift concussion and then you start reading about CTE and you, you see things and, and you wonder where you're going to be in 15 years. So uh, I thought that I would write 15, 20 pages, 15, 20 pages, maybe five pages to my kids. And I would tell them all the great stories. And I've listened to this show before and heard you guys telling Brian Kilray stories. And I thought, you know what, I'll tell some funny killer stories. I'll talk about getting drafted and how great uh, some parts of my career were. And then when you start talking about those things, it was the other stuff started to pop up that I had kind of blocked out. And when uh, you remove yourself from hockey, sometimes uh, those things uh, come fast and furious. And uh, so that's why I started writing and 15 pages turned into a 200 page book. Is that where the conflicted part comes in? Because when you and I were even chatting before this, Justin, you said it's not like you hate hockey and you don't want to make this a conversation about how awful the game is. But there were parts of it certainly that you began to remember that began to bubble to the surface that perhaps weren't so great. Yeah, it's a, a great question. Like, I think one of the best parts of my life was winning the Memorial cup in overtime in Ottawa and jumping in the uh, Rideau canal. And uh, we won a triple overtime game to win the university cup in Kitchener. And uh, that game was, was funny because it, it went to triple overtime and, uh, the Kitchener Ranger fans were filling in for the night game because the game was going so long. And I just remember starting the game in front of a thousand fans and winning it in front of 4,000 fans. And uh, so that was exciting. But then I look back on that. I played with a, with a badly separated shoulder and had my frozen, my shoulder frozen three times during that game. So I couldn't feel it. And I can't raise my right arm over my head now. So when we talked about being conflicted, did. I won a championship and it was a great moment, but then now I'm dealing with the repercussions. So it was just battling with, do I love the game? Do I hate the game? I feel this way, but I'm glad I went through some things and glad I didn't go through others, some other things. So yeah, it, conflicted was the word that just kept coming back to me. That part of the conflict and that part of the culture of the game, really, right? When you're injured, but it's an important game. So you got to tape it up, get back out there. You got to play through the pain, pay, play through the injury. And and that shoulder injury was one of just many that you had. How many concussions did you end up counting by the end of all of this? I think I had between 12 to 15 concussions. And I, I think most players will say they have those little ones where their, where their bell was rung, but I had... Uh, a hospital stay in, in Detroit where I was uh, in, um, sent to critical care unit. I was, uh, I had one in, in Kingston where I was throwing up all over the bench and uh, we only had one trainer at the time. And I was left in the shower in between periods in my equipment in the dark. And so I, I had those two major ones that were really big. And then obviously the research research shows the more you have uh, uh, those little ones become uh, a little more, uh, a little more commonplace. So yeah, 12 to 14. So when you see where we are at in the game today with head injuries, do you feel that we're in a good place in that particular part of the game? I think we're in a better place. I think year round junior hockey. I think the problem is, is protecting the players from themselves. Um, I think if you ask anybody with the Kitchener Rangers, if they're ranking they're injured, can they go tonight? They'll say they can play. So it's a matter of having the right people in place. Back in the day when I played, 
our trainer was our our equipment manager was our uh our our travel agent was everything so we had one person so they weren't going to tell me that I wasn't going to I wasn't going to play the next weekend because they had to worry about ordering sticks and they had to worry about filling up water bottles. So junior organizations are a little more complex now. So I'd hope that the doctors and the trainers are are trained and can protect the kids from themselves. I mean, I have a 16 year old son. They don't make the best decisions. So you need someone to protect them from themselves. That's a great way to put it. And and I wonder if back then, Justin, you you were doing it like without even really thinking about doing it. Yeah, of course I'm going to play through the pain because that's what hockey players do. Yeah. I, I mean, I was a healthy scratch for the first couple of games of my career and uh, someone pulled their groin and warm up in Sault Ste. Marie and uh, they couldn't play. And I got inserted into the lineup and had a hat trick and ended up on the first line the rest of the year and got drafted. So when you see those things happen for you, then you're afraid to come out, right? The people say you don't lose your place because of injury, but unfortunately it happens. And uh, so that's a tough part about the game that people wonder, why do you play through these things? It's because it's your livelihood at that time and you don't want to come out of the lineup. When, when your book turned out the way that it did, were you surprised at all yourself having started in one direction and ending up with the kind of book that you've ended up with? Yeah. I mean, three years ago, the chapters I sent into the publisher were the Western and the Ottawa chapters, which I thought were the best chapters. And then now I look back on what I wrote and, uh, and the research into things and looking back, I think they may be the two that don't get talked about as much as the other ones. So it's a very different book. And even uh, when the manuscript was purchased, uh, the Hockey Canada stuff came forward and uh, the Kyle Beach stuff came out and it was just, it felt like hockey was topical every, every month. So it's, it's very different than what I expected. I mean, it's given me a platform to speak and talk to you and have some conversations, which has been great. So uh, I'm glad where it went to, but it was totally unexpected. So when I, when I say the term hockey culture, Justin, what does that mean to you? I was asked that for the first time when it came out probably two months ago to, to give a, a description or the exact words. And what I will say is you're indoctrinated into believing something and acting a certain way and talking a certain way and walking a certain way and thinking a certain way, but you don't know it. And it wasn't until I was a high school teacher and I removed myself from the hockey world and I was telling stories in a staff room or talking to other people, I realized the people I thought were abnormal so i used to i always tell people we referred to people that didn't play hockey or weren't in the hockey world as civilians so like i went to a dinner party and there was three civilians there then i started to realize that these people weren't the abnormal ones we were what we went through so hockey culture is just this way of you're, you're taught how to act and you're taught uh you're taught how to live life and we're the only culture really, I think, where you move away from home when you're 14 or 15 years old. I, I played junior C as a 14-year-old with 20, 21-year-olds. So when you say, how did you start thinking a certain way or how did you learn this? I mean, I, I was playing with people six, seven years older and the OHL is no different. When you combine that aspect of hockey, which I think is is pretty unique, right? You don't see that in other sports. So you're moving kids away from their own homes into essentially foster homes. And then you combine yeah. it with what we already talked about with this notion that you have to play through pain. Are those, you know, two big pieces of what makes you the abnormal one to use the words you used a moment ago? Yeah, I think so. And, and people assume that you're put into these great homes and the teams are doing their best, but you can only vet so much what's going on in the house and you don't always have people that want to take a hockey player on. We billeted for two years with the Guelph storm and we had a great situation with, with the kid, but I knew what they needed. I knew what meals they needed. I knew what support they needed. I talk about in the book, I lived in a house where domestic abuse was prevalent and I lived in one room in the house and had nowhere really to go. So when you talk about mental health aspect, uh, moving away, if you have that support system and a, a family that's not yourself, that's great. But not everybody deals with that. And it's really tough. Your family's unique, you find out. You think everybody lives like your family, but it's not until you live in these other houses that you realize um, 
other people live much different. And at 16, 17, that's really tough. Were you worried at all about the reaction to the book once it was published? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, I thought we're always told what's said in the room stays in the room. And uh, I thought I was speaking out and there's nights where I was worried how people are going to react. But I think the way I've lived my life, I've had this integrity and I've left places and I've had great relationships and people know it's coming from a good place. And I'm not, I'm not out to join the class action lawsuit. I'm not out to, to go after people and for monetary value. I just want to talk. I want to have a conversation and the feedback has been great. Even on the way home today, I received a text out of the blue from the least person, the, the last person in the world that I thought would ever write an encouraging message and saying, thank you for writing that a former teammate. And, uh, and you're right. It's things we went through. We should have not, we should never gone through. So I've been getting two or three of these texts a day just from random people. And I haven't received uh, a negative one. I'm sure in my, uh, I'm sure in my comment section on these videos, there'll be a lot of negative ones, but, uh, but to my face, things have been fantastic. Does that indicate to you then, Justin, that that maybe the game and the people within it are ready for this kind of change? Because there has been this conversation going on for pretty close to a year now. Yeah, I think the Mitchell Miller situation uh, recently was was a positive thing for hockey. I mean, outside of what he did and with the Bruins doing, the fact that an NHL team had a dressing room where guys were willing to say, no, this is not right. This is not who we are as a culture. And it got to the point where, uh, I mean, they can't release him from his contract, but he's no longer part of the organization. I think that's a huge step that someone did that. And it shows that players can have a voice. I think in the NHL, I think it's the, we have the least outspoken group of um, high profile athletes when you compare it to basketball, LeBron James and these top guys and other sports. Nobody's afraid to speak out, but hockey, we're, we're told, and it's part of that culture. You don't speak out against the game and you behave yourself. And so that was great to see. And I think it was one positive step going forward for sure. Now that, that we're here and we're having this conversation and, and the, the book is finished, you mentioned three years ago, you start, you're going to put together a collection of stories, most of them around the great successes at Western and in Ottawa with that Memorial Cup but these different stories start flooding back. How much thought have you given to the time between the end of your hockey career and the starting of this writing process? Like who was Justin Davis in that time? Did he just not really give much thought to what he had gone through and the impact that it had had on him? Yeah, I, I think what I did was when I retired from hockey, I, I played senior hockey for a couple of years. And that was like my, uh, it was like getting released from prison, right? It was my uh, re-entry into the world uh, slowly. And uh, I started coaching AAA hockey and youth hockey. And I started to see how, I think the research for my book was just seeing how I'd go to a GTHL hockey tournament and watch how parents were acting and other coaches and finding out a major Bantam coach was making $50,000 to coach the Toronto Red Wings. And I just started to realize how much was wrong with the culture. So it was that gap from when I stopped playing to where I started writing, it was almost research without knowing it and just seeing what was wrong with the game and where we're, where we are losing touch with reality. And then being involved with the Gulf storm as a, as a player mentor and chapel leader, just seeing how some of these kids were feeling in our conversations and, and they were going through the same struggles and just seeing myself in them. So they were lost years for sure. I never intended to write a book, but it was a span where I just started to see the game from a different perspective, not someone that was on the ice, but from as an outsider. So when you look back now on the young man you were when you were playing the game of hockey, how do you view that period of your life? There's, there's things I regret, like all of us. And I think that's when people are reaching out, they're like, man, I wish I'd stopped that. But when you talk about hazing and some things that you were a part of, it happened to you. So it was cyclical. And I talk about in the book, the coach at the front of the bus that let these things go on under his watch. He probably did the same thing 25 years ago. So he didn't think it was wrong. So it was a cycle. So there, there's some things that I'm embarrassed that I was a part of and I, I take full responsibility. But there's also things where, uh, I played a great part in some communities. I got to know some great people. Um, 
I think I was a good player in the dressing room. Obviously, I got to be a leader in a lot of the places I went and play a huge part in a lot of championships. So I'm proud of that and proud of the impact I had on the communities that I was in. So is that to say then, just so I'm sure I understand that after going through the hazing yourself and being on the receiving end, you yep. would have been a veteran player that took part in the next group's initiation. Sure. And I'd say I would have sat back and I talk in the book. It's funny. The guys that got it the worst are the guys that are the worst actors going forward. So some guys get picked on for some reason, whether it's the bullying, it's their personality, it's who they are. They get picked on really bad. And there's always one or two guys that got picked on those guys in turn, turn into the angry veterans the next year. The guys were good to me. And I say that I criticize guys for hazing me, but everyone I kind of knew what to do. I was the good rookie where I got you your Gatorade. I got you your tape. I did this. I told you your joke when you needed it. So I may have witnessed things. I wasn't a huge part in things happening. But again, when you sit back and you let things happen, I'm no different than other people. But you knew because you were so involved in the game for so long that these hazing rituals happened and you essentially wore them as a badge of honor, right? You did that. You got through that. You've crossed that, that barrier in your hockey career. Yeah. And it's, it's weird, right? Like I played junior C, I said, as 14, 15 year old, I played junior B and then I played in the OHL. So hazing became just second nature being naked in front of other guys. And these stupid things just became normal. So with that culture, it, it just, it becomes second nature and I'd lose sleep. Like when the hot box, I knew we were doing the hot box or we had the rookie party the next day, you'd lose sleep because it was uncomfortable and it was just like really nervous. But when you, when you perform these acts and you did these things that they asked you, you felt like, man, I'm a part of the team. It's done. I can move forward. And uh, I'm one of the guys. And now I've gone through this and it's, you look back, it's just, some of the things weren't right. And, but when I look back at other things and where the games evolved now, I don't think there's anything wrong with rookies sitting at the front of the bus two to a seat or maybe getting your food last or picking up pucks in front of 5,000 people at the odd. There's little things that let you know your, your place and that other people go through, but not the far fetch, these crazy ideas from the past. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you said that in the way that you did, because I'm, I'm a civilian. I never played the game at a high level at all. Yeah. I didn't go through any of that ritualistic hazing, but what's interesting to me, and I'll go back to what you said before about civilians. So that's, that's yeah. what I am. I'm a civilian, yeah. but I was in a workplace when I was in high school and I was initiated. The initiation was I was working in a, in a plant in a factory and they gave me a bucket almost filled right to the brim with water but they yep. told me this was a highly volatile chemical and I had to carry it to the other side and it shouldn't swish. And if it spills, oh my goodness, you know, the plant might blow up or whatever. Yep. That was, you know, and I look back on that, like whatever, but the kinds of hazing rituals that were involved for you as an athlete were remarkably different than that. And that's where that disconnect is where you didn't know that what you were doing was abnormal because that's what you were experiencing all the time. Right. So, I mean, being asked to take your clothes off on a bus and walk to the back and get in the bathroom with six other rookies while the heat's on for an hour or two hours may not be right. When they tell me, give me an empty bucket and tell me to go to the Zamboni driver and get a bucket of steam and I go do that. And I come back and I realize you can't get a bucket of steam and everyone's laughing at you. That's fine. Like there, there are certain things that are just part of being part of the team that don't have to be like so the just degrading right to you personally what does your family how does your family feel about the book <laughs> you've written the kids that you were going to write all these great hockey stories for your wife all like how do they feel about this well i i'm an introvert and i don't really show much emotion that's what i talk about in the book i'm trying to figure out why you don't show emotion and why you talk about things and i basically wrote a book didn't tell my parents it got picked up by um, <laughs> by a publisher and my wife said you know you're gonna have to tell your parents you did this so I drove to Hamilton on um, on like a Tuesday night and sat my parents down and said hey I wrote a book and they're like okay what's it about and I explained the process then my parents had to wait two years for it to be published and uh, other people had read it before them and I didn't want to give them electronic copy because like me they're hard copy reading 
is kind of is how they do things. So my dad read this with the public, just like everybody else. And his one reaction was, if we had known what you went through, we would have picked you up. They, we trusted these people and we would have brought you home. And I said, dad, like I wasn't going home. <laughs> like if you tell me when I was in my rookie year in Kingston, that you're going to come and get me. There's no way I would have let you take me home. And like, so this is beyond you. And this is the culture people created. You trusted these people. So, um, now my dad sneaks into chapters and he's moving my book into Heather's picks and the front of the store. So, <laughs> so we've come full circle here where, uh, where I think they're proud that I use my voice and that uh, I'm trying to make change and I'm having these conversations with people. So, uh, so we've come full circle, but I can't imagine what it's like as a parent reading what happened to your kid and you had no idea. Okay. You've just blown my mind a little bit though here. You're telling me Heather's picks aren't Heather's picks. Like people monkey around with that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you got to sell books. You got to make your, uh, your $2 every book somewhere. Okay. So what you just talked about with your parents is something I was wondering about when you, you mentioned that conversation, because obviously they had no idea at the time what you were going through. And frankly, you wouldn't have talked to them about it. Would you have? No. And, and they remember a time in Guelph where I got on the bus in Kingston. I bust all the way to Guelph and on the way on the way off the bus after eating lunch and getting going into the rink and being changed my suit, the coach said, Oh, by the way, uh, you're not playing tonight. And I had probably 50 people there to watch the game. And I had to wait for everyone to get there. And I had to sit there and tell them I'm not playing tonight. And you assume everybody's fam. You assume that everybody, their family are hockey fans. My aunt can't figure out why I'm not playing. Like she bought a ticket for $15 and I'm not playing and I'm not injured. And then fast forward another year on my birthday, I was playing in Guelph. This is why I have a bad relationship with the old uh, Guelph arena. Uh, on my birthday, everyone was there behind the bench and bought tickets and had signs. And the coach gave me one shift in the first period and never played me again. And I had to come out and face everybody like 70 people, family, friends, and you're so embarrassed like inside. And this is where I'm talking about just this, this communication that was so gone where the coach had could have told me before I got on the bus, Hey, not playing well. I think I'm going to sit you out tonight. Um, let your family know. And I'm going to put you in the lineup tomorrow and I need you to be tougher. I need you to do this better and all these things, but there's no communication and just this mental anguish. And these are things where I'm afraid now, if I get a presentation or I win an award doing something where I'm afraid to show any joy in it because I've been broken down so many times from my past. Do you think that was done with intent on the coach's part? Or was he just oblivious to how much that game might've meant to you with so many people there? Everything those guys did was with intent. Every single thing from Monday morning, they knew when you came in, you checked your practice Jersey color. And if I'm on the black line, they give me the red Jersey all week thinking I'm on the fourth line and no communication. And then all of a sudden the game starts and I'm back on my, my normal line. Everything was mind games. And this is what I, I say now when I deal with friends that are coaches in the OHL or assistant coach, or they ask for advice, I say, just be honest, just tell the kids, if you're not playing well, tell them they're not playing well. If you're not in the lineup, tell them, but just, just communication. So you're not going back to a stranger's house and sitting there and just pouring over things. And it's so tough, Every, except for Brian Kilroy. I will say to, to my detriment, sometimes Brian would tell you what he thought. And he may scream it across the ice at you while you're on the ice, but I always knew where I stood with Brian and it was just such a, a breath of fresh air. I remember, uh, I remember one of his fa famous quotes. I think he told it on the podcast where I can't tell if you're playing left wing for us or right wing for them, not about <laughs> you, but about one of his players, right? That was his mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, and if you made a bad pass, the whole arena knew you made a bad pass and you'd, try and just find a route that you could get to the bench somehow that he couldn't see and get to the middle. And he would just give it to you. And to the point you'd say, okay, killer. Like I get it. <laughs> that guy in row seven knows it, but then he'd always have these funny lines that would just like put you in hysterics and then like it would break the ice and you'd be fine. What have you talked to him? Has he reached out touch base since the book came out? Yeah. It, that one's really interesting. So when I was looking for a forward to the book, I was like, I don't have these famous NHL people that are going to write a forward, but I was like the guy I respect the most in the game of hockey and how he treated me was Brian Kilroy. So I'll get a hold of killer. So I'm like, well, how do you get a hold of killer? 
So I thought, you know what? I'll Canada 411. I guarantee you it says Kilray and his address and all that. So I call and it was like it was 1998 or even 1968 again. His wife, Judy, picks up and says, oh, hi, Justin. How you doing? O'Brien's just walking the dog right now. And uh, when he gets back, I'll have him give you a call. So he calls me and we talked like I was the most important person in the room again and that he couldn't wait to hear what I was doing or how I was. And when I told him that I was going to, could he write a forward? He said, absolutely. Like I, and I said, are you worried what I'm going to write? He said, I trust you. Whatever you write, I know is going to be the truth. And he just had that, that integrity to him that he knew how he treated us. And in turn, we weren't going to write something bad because there was nothing bad. So he he's been fantastic in it. And I have, and I'm proud of actually what I wrote and long answer, but I got a random text from, I don't know if these people get my number, but a, a week ago from some, from a guy that said, I bought the book because I heard you wrote something about Brian Kilray and I played for Brian and I wanted to make sure you weren't, you weren't going to say anything bad about him. And I'm here for Brian. He's like, and I read the chapter and I felt like I was with him again. It was fantastic. <laughs> so I feel like I did something right when, when someone said that. So that honesty that you said you tell people that are still involved in the game coaching to give to their players. I, I like that aspect of this too. And I wonder, it, like, this is a performance-based, a results-oriented business. The Niagara Ice Dogs just said that the other day when they fired a coach. Things aren't going the way we expected to. It's a results-based business. He's got to go. Is it still okay to have that kind of honesty and tell a kid, listen, you're not playing the way we need you to play right now. You're going to sit in the press box tonight. I think as, as long as you explain it, and I always tell, like I'm used to it from teaching, but you have two people in the room. So you have the assistant coach with you that can hear it and can fill in the blanks because sometimes you don't pick up what the other person is picking up and it can be a conversation and you don't always have to agree, right? Like someone may think I'm a great teacher and someone may think I'm the worst teacher in the school, but at, at some point through communication, we can get through that and figure out what we're doing right or what we're doing wrong. And I think kids today, if you told me you needed me to, to go run that guy at the other end of the ice and slash him across the back and come to the bench on that, when I played 90% of guys would have just gone and done it. Now a kid will turn around and say, well, why do you want me to do that? And you have to explain it. So it's a different generation of kids, but there's nothing wrong with having to communicate. And I, I think with everything, you just want to know where, where you stand. This isn't, a 32 year old NHL veteran. This is a 17 year old kid, right? An 18 year old kid. We're talking about junior hockey players. I'm thinking on the trajectory of your OHL career. So with, with Kingston, you had those couple of really rough incidents with the old Guelph arena in Sault Ste. Marie. You're, you're living with a billet family where there may, may well have been domestic uh, violence happening in the home. And then You've spoken very highly of Brian Kilray in the Ottawa 67s. Obviously, that's where you win the championship. But it must have been a breath of fresh air for you, Justin, to be moved from the Sioux to Ottawa. Yeah, and I received a phone call, and it was uh, and it was Brian. I remember I was I just got home to to Waterdale where I was living at the time, and he said, "Brian Kilray," he said, "I just traded a sixth round pick for you, and." Um, Every game you played against us, you scored. So that's fine with me. They need you in Ottawa today. So I went and I practiced. And when we talk about billets, I said, uh, do you know where I'm going tonight? He's like, you're coming home with Judy and I. <laughs> so I got in the 67s van and I think we did about 30 kilometers an hour through, uh, through the city and got home and Judy had made dinner and we sat. And I, I said in the book, it was the first time someone talked to me like I was a human in about two months. And we just had a conversation and he brought me downstairs and he said, this is where I watch hockey games. This is my chair. You can sit in my chair and this is my fridge here. If you want to have a beer. And then he showed me the phone and he's like, and if you need to make a call. So I had a calling card and Brian had one of those old rotary phones still, which isn't surprising. I remember my calling card just trying to, I had zero and it's going around and one and it's going around. And finally I was like, forget, it. I'm just making a long distance call. So when you talk about going from all these billet situations and these tough circumstances, now I'm living with this guy who's a junior legend and he's treating me like a human. He's giving me a chair. He's making sure I have food. He's driving me to school the next day. And it was just to use your words. You said just a, a breath of fresh air. 
I'll tell you what, you've got me distracted again just a little bit talking about calling cards. There's a whole generation, Justin, that has no idea what us old guys are talking about when we say calling cards. I used to have one too when I worked yeah. out West and I had to call home to mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, So for people wondering, you just, you prepaid this calling card, which allowed you to call long distance and uh, you had to, the process of putting in the numbers and hooking everything up and then you'd be in the middle of a conversation with timeout, but I'm sure they don't know what a rotary phone is either, but uh, we won't waste time on that. I forgot about that part. And I'm not ashamed to admit, by the way, my mother would mail me the calling cards so I didn't have to pay for them. That's how good <laughs> <Yeah>. I had it. <laughs> that was a junior hockey staple, all your parents, uh, uh, a container of cookies and a couple of calling cards. So is that what allowed you to flourish in Ottawa at the end of your junior career, being in an environment like that? Yeah, because Brian, Brian made one trade a year. Like if he even made a trade and the only way he traded was to trade for someone his, when you talk about all these coaches getting fired and GMs, Brian just drafted well and he scouted well. So, and he's, he said his job was to develop you over four years. And if you were playing bad, he thought that was something on him where he wasn't developing you. So he would work harder. Whereas these other coaches, they just, they trade you. So it allowed you to breathe. You knew you weren't getting traded. You knew that, his practices, we were in the same practice every day for, uh, for the two years I was there and a little sidetracked. I was talking with Corey Locke, who's an assistant coach with the Guelph storm. And we were going over his practice the other day in the coach's room. And we were laughing that we both played, never played together, played years apart yet. We knew what his practice was, but, um, it just allowed you to breathe. It allowed you just to play your game. He wanted me to score. And that's all he asked me to do. Go score, be offensive. We've got someone else to do these other jobs. I don't want you to fight. When you're fighting, that's five minutes that you can't score. So once you can play your game and your head's on straight and you've got good billets and you, uh, you can have fun again, I mean, it makes a big difference, right? So can we talk about the fun hockey stuff for a moment here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let me go back to Sault Ste. Marie, though. The experience wasn't great. And obviously the billet set billet setup wasn't, yeah. but Joe Thornton was on that team. And that guy is the stuff of legend at every level he's played at. What was it like walking into a room and onto a team that had a guy like Jumbo Joe? I was always hesitant. Like when I first got there, I'm like, he was a big deal because he was going to be the first overall pick. So he was like, for people that don't remember that generation, like he was the Connor McDavid coming out but he was tough and he could fight so when I walked in the room I just tried to give him his space because everyone wanted a piece of him at that time but both of us could never sleep on the bus so we would always sit beside each other and I watched Joe the first road trip all the way from Michigan back to the Sioux he'd be taking he always had the long hair and he'd take one hair at a time and he'd be putting on someone's face sleeping in front of him and then he'd take another one and he'd put it on his face again and it was like these little things that he would do. He was, I always said he was a 30 year old, 40 year old man at that point, body and skill wise in like an eight year old's body. And nobody had more joy playing the game. So we became really good friends. And after the season, we flew to visit his brother in Galveston, uh, Texas, who's a teacher there. And uh, we had a great relationship. I remember sidetracked again, but we were at a silver chair concert and Joe was going to be the first overall pick and we were in a mosh pit and he was just destroying people. And, but nobody knew who this big 16, 17 year old kid was. And I remember his brother taking it out by his shirt and saying, you've got to stop. You just got to get out of here. But that was, that was Jumbo Joe just. And when I wrote him about the book and asking if he had a couple of things to say, we talked like it was again, like it was 1998 and he was the exact same person, which is I think the best thing you can say about somebody. Can we credit Joe Thornton's brother for inspiring you to become a teacher? <laughs> yeah, they were, uh, it, it's that family is a, a close knit family is a, it's a great family. And you can see where he got a lot of his uh, characteristics from. Obviously anybody that, uh, that plays this game at the level that you played it is in pursuit of that ultimate prize, the Memorial cup. Not only did you get to play it and win it, but it was on home ice in Ottawa. What do you remember of that experience in the May of 1999? I think the nice part is I was an overage. So you knew this was going to be it for your career. So many times you go into a game and you don't know that your career is going to be over if you win or lose. So I knew this was it. I knew my family could book tickets ahead of time. And 
and it was just kind of like a surreal experience where I, where I could just wrap things up. And when we talk about conflicted scars and all these emotions, highs and lows, I knew I was going to finish on a high no matter what. And if we won, that would be fantastic. But I just got a chance where everybody could celebrate uh, being in the Memorial Cup and playing and, and doing it in a hometown was, was, was unbelievable. And it's funny, my best friend, Neil, who followed me everywhere I went, I remember I bought a couple extra packages and I had him out scalping tickets before for every game, trying to make some money so we could go on vacation after. And when we made the Memorial Cup final, I was so excited I had a chance to win, but I was like, do you know what these tickets are going to be worth? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, not everybody approached things the same way I did, but uh, yeah, that's one thing I always remember. How good did it feel to beat Belleville to earn your berth in the final of that tournament after they were obviously the OHL champs because you guys bowed out earlier that year? Yeah, we just, we constantly battled and you always feel sorry for teams that feel like they earned it. I mean, they went through two more rounds and they battle scarred and they were a fantastic team, but I think sometimes when you know you're hosting, uh, no matter what happens, you're not willing to block that shot with your face or you're not willing to go that extra mile. And I think we played a little loosey goosey for how we were, but they beat us. So we played them in the round Robin and we got up, I think it was three, one or four, two, or we up two goals and they came back and they won in overtime. And so it just felt like it was one of those teams that just had your number, but um one of my favorite goals I scored was I think it was a 2-2 game or 3-2 game I scored coming out of the break uh at a commercial break and uh it put us up I thought I think it was 4-2 and uh that was kind of the dagger to finally eliminate them but uh it was a great feeling and uh that was that was a great team they had gritty and tough and uh and a lot of talent what was the time off like between the second round <laughs> elimination? I say, okay, I think yeah. you know why I'm asking the question. Cause yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think killer would have taken it easy on you. Well, he sent us home for five days. Okay. So I think that was the best for him. And the best for us is not to see him for five days. And uh, so we went home, it changed and we came back and we, the one thing about Brian Kilroy practices is like these coaches will skate guys at the end of practice now they'll go to the board, they'll do all these drills and you kind of stand around for an hour and a half and then they condition skate you at the end of practice. But with Brian, it was 50 minutes, but you did not stop. You were just moving and moving and moving. So he skated us hard, but at the same time, he just changed practice from 45 minutes to about an hour, 10 minutes and picked up the pace even more. And, uh, and guys were driven and it was tough. Like it was really tough, but, uh, uh, he had us prepared and I don't feel like we lost a step. I mean, we won the first game of the tournament five, one over uh, uh, Roberto Luongo and uh, Katie Bath uh, Bathurst. So we we're ready to go. You finished that tournament with nine points tournament lead. That's a stat, Justin, that nobody can ever take away from you. Uh, 20 plus years later, how's it feel? Yeah, it's great. I mean, if you look through it on, I was Googling some stuff on, for my book, just looking back, because you think that happened, but you're just making sure. And you see your name with like some Sidney Crosby's and, and guys like this. And I laugh because initially when they did the presentation, they're like, and uh, uh, the leading score of the tournament gets, and then it was like this TSO $200 watch. And then they're like, the MVP of the tournament gets $2,000 check. And it was like Nick Boynton and Nick had just signed an NHL deal. And I had no contract. So I was like, man, I just can't catch a break. I would have liked <laughs> the $2,000 and I got this watch, but now I still have the watch on my dresser upstairs and it, it's almost like a trophy for what happened. And a reminder uh, that I was lucky enough to have such a great tournament. What about the ring? This is why I wrote my book. I had that ring and my university ring and my Allen cup ring and all these jerseys. And I had them hidden away and, bottom drawers and the back of the closet. And I was not embarrassed with the stuff I won, but I just, I just couldn't showcase it. And then that's why I was trying to figure out why, why can't I wear this stuff out? And uh, so the book was great in figuring that out, figuring out how I kind of <laughs> need to talk to people and figure things out. And, and now I bring it out a little more and maybe one time if we have a reunion, uh, I'll, I'll wear it once again. Okay. So this sounds like this book was pretty therapeutic for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it gave me an opportunity just to talk. And this is what guys are reaching out and telling me is saying, I haven't told my wife 
the hazing stuff that went on. I never told my wife why I don't communicate this way and my kids, why I treat them like this and why I do this with sports. And so, yeah, it's, it's explained a lot to me and it's helped me kind of analyze who I am and why I do things. And when guys like you interview me and have me on and are nice enough to have me on the platform, even go through the questions. Sometimes I step back after the interview and say that, well, that makes sense. And that makes sense. So it, it's been a great process. Well, you know, when you mentioned that, Justin, going back to when you and I were first communicating about this, uh, you had talked to uh, Troy Smith and Jay McKee and Dave Lilac, all guys that I would consider friends in this game who all said, you know, like, let's get in touch with Farwell and have these conversations. But that, I think, speaks to the caliber of person that has certainly not shied away from you since this book came out. Yeah, exactly. That's tough, right? With like Jay's a head coach of the the Hamilton Bulldogs and Troy was someone that was so involved in the game and and stepped uh, stepped away for a little bit. And and Dave is like a former teammate and somebody that has talked to me openly about uh, like some of the hazing stuff that he's gone through, which also helps me. So you just realize like, like you said, like uh, a good friend of mine, Growing up was Todd Miller, who is the assistant coach of the Storm, and he was the old head coach of the Oshawa Generals and with Howard Chuck and Barry. And it's been great connecting with him over the last uh, last month or so in Guelph. And just this is what we need. Like I talk about people are like, well, hockey culture is terrible. A lot of it's not great, but there's a lot of it that is good. It's a community. Former players have the opportunity to talk. So there is some of the culture that 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 is is good. And has helped us in our careers moving forward. And uh, there's so many good people still in the game that are looking to make a difference. What are those parts of the culture, Justin, that you would like to see us build on as we do what needs to be done here, right? And that is change the culture. What can we look at to build on? I think dealing with adversity and failure. I think in our society and where we're going, everybody wants to be drafted in the first round and be on the first power play when they show up to, to Kitchener Rangers camp, right? But Mark Bell, who was my line mate in the Memorial Cup and had a great NHL career, he sat almost to Christmas with Killer. And he learned how to play and he learned how to deal with adversity. So I think the culture allows us to deal with, deal with failure, but we can pick kids up and explain to them that this is okay. This is how we deal with things and move forward. And that adversity and it just allows you to be a stronger person and, and integrity, right? To stand up, like I say, when things are happening that aren't right or the integrity of doing things the right way. And uh, and hockey's taught me a lot of those things, how to communicate with people, how when you get traded or bad things are happening, not to slam the door and walk out, just to keep open relationships with people and always leave on good terms. So those are two things that I think, but adversity is a big one. We're not allowing kids to fail a lot of the time now. And failure is not a bad thing as long as we communicate and we explain why things are happening. And I think in the game, this connects back to what we were talking about near the beginning of this. And that is, you know, we're talking about 15, 16, 17 year old kids. Learning to fail is one thing. Learning to fail at that age and being okay with failure at that age is is another thing entirely. Right. And they're going to fail at some point. Like you're going to hit a point where I was, I went to my first NHL training camp and I realized I am not good enough as a goal scorer to play in the NHL. I tried, but I realized it wasn't good enough. That happens to some 16 year olds at AAA hockey or 17 year olds in junior C or junior B or guys don't make the OHL or guys are playing in the OHL and they're not good enough to get drafted and they go to university hockey. At some point you're not going to be good enough. And it's just being able to come to terms and figure out where your place is and what your purpose is. So it's a great point. It's interesting to hear you say it that way, that you realized when you got to that training camp that you weren't good enough to be a goal scorer in the National Hockey League. My sense has often been that players recognize that when they don't get the contract or something like that. And they might, you know, be a, they might hold a grudge while they should have signed me and they didn't. How did how did you know? Like the caps take you in the fourth round. You go to a training camp. How did you know? Well, I had scored 30 goals as a rookie. So I think I came out of the year and I thought I was awesome, right? (laughs) I had had 48 or 58 points, whatever it was. I had 30 goals. I was the second team, like all-star or whatever. And um, I thought it was a big deal. And then I got drafted and 85th overall. And I'm like, okay, Washington said, we want you to come for the summer. So I'm skating with guys who I like. I think of my Sega Genesis, 92, 93 hockey, like Joe Juno and... um, 
and then Chris Simon and Adam Oates and all these guys. But then all of a sudden there's some Finnish guy I've never heard of who's undrafted and he may be the most talented guy on the ice. And there's a U.S. college kid I've never heard of and he's unbelievable and he's 23 and fully developed. So you start to realize how big of a hockey world is around you. And then you realize you watch these goal scorers like Peter Bondro is at camp and you watch how easy they score. And you realize I'm not, I'm not going to score 30 in the NHL. I'm going to have to change my game, but I was never willing to be the guy that was going to fight 15 times a year, 20 times a year and lose and get my face punched in to try and make it. And I had friends that were willing to do that and all the power to them. And that's why they made the money and they made the NHL, whether it's for one or two or five years. But in my mind, I was going to make it as a scorer or a kind of gritty player, but I wasn't willing to put my face on the line to do it. You know, given what you've been through injury, uh, injury wise, uh, the, the struggles with mental health, the, you know, you, you said you were on a disability when you took time to start writing this book, you're, you're off work. A lot of guys might hold a grudge. And, and I gotta say, like, I'm impressed as hell that you have this kind of outlook and you're still around the game as much as you are. Why is that? Like, what do you, can you put a finger on what keeps you from being angry at this game for lack of a better question? Well, I think I have the opportunity through everything I've been through. And I tell the Guelph storm kit this, that we have a purpose in life. We don't know what it is and things happen for a reason. And for some reason you're here at the Guelph storm, you might've thought you were getting drafted somewhere else, or you might've got traded here, but we're all here. And I realized that I ended up in Guelph for a reason. And my career has given me a voice. This book now has given me a voice and I can sit back and be bitter and complain, but I have an opportunity to, to have, to make change in the game. I'm going to talk about things and what am I going to do to change it? Or am I going to be the guy that just sits on the couch and says, this is wrong. And this is wrong. So I like parts of the game. I, I like watching the game. I like watching the minor hockey part and I coach high school hockey, which I love. And uh, I have the opportunity to make a difference and I got to put my money where my mouth is at some point. So that's where I think um, that's where I think I am. And I'm not bitter and I've got to move forward. Like we all do. I'm, I don't know if I'm halfway through life, but <laughs> I've got a long, long way to go. And I want to be able to be, people say, wow, he made a difference. All right. Does that give you any pause to think about or vision, like, like start thinking strategically longer term, what you'd like to do, where you might like to take this voice next? Uh, I'm in talks right now with a couple of people. So I've had a lot of people reach out and say they want to be a part of something and what can they do? And we're right now in the initial stages of looking at uh, starting a program with the underserved community, BIPOC community, um, people that can't afford hockey in Guelph. And uh, the first shift does a great job as a program for, for kids that haven't played hockey before and providing them equipment. But a lot of the time, this is from affluent communities or people that know about it. So our goal is to get kids, 30 or 40 kids to start into a ball hockey program, move that to an ice hockey program, the second uh, part of that year, and then make that a cycle that we continue to cycle through and give kids an opportunity just to play. People can't afford thousand two thousand dollars for equipment and sign up just to decide if they want to play or they like it so we're in the initial stages reaching out to people and if someone listens to this and they're interested uh that's what we're trying to do and hopefully it's successful and we can move it to a community like kitchener and to a community like london but we got to start small and uh and and go from there it occurs to me that we probably we probably wouldn't be, we might not be having this conversation had your book come out 10 years ago. Or even a year ago, right? Yeah, maybe, right? Yeah, I was thinking that, and I was complaining because they originally told me it was supposed to come out last Christmas and it got pushed. And I was like, why is this happening? I just want it to come out. And and now it came out right in the middle of everything that's happening. So when I just said things happen for a reason and, and a purpose, uh, I'm thankful it did. And yeah, I wonder what the reaction would have been if it came out two years ago. So no, you're correct. You're really, you're right in that. Do you think the game's ready for the change that obviously you and I and so many others that you've talked to uh, think it needs? Is the game ready for this? I think it's as ready as it has been, but I don't think it has a choice anymore. I think people are standing up and there's good people 
I mean, Rick Westhead takes a lot of blowback sometimes and people say, why don't you write a good, uh, a good story, but he's approaching things with purpose and trying to help hockey. I mean, the one thing he is saying is I don't want to be the guy that breaks the Kyle Clifford trade. I want to be the, the person out there that prevents someone from sexually assaulting someone down the line. So when these stories are coming out and you can't get away with the things that you got away with in the past and people are open to, to talking and, we're entering different communities that have never played the game before. I think this is as open as we have been, but this isn't going to take two years. We're not going to set the world on fire in two years. This is a long process and, uh, and uh, we're at the initial stages, but I think it's as ready as it has been. Even you, so many people have had me on to talk and speak about it, which shows there's a lot of people willing to, to at least talk about it and give people a platform. You know, it occurs to me, and I think you just touched on this by talking about what's next, but you almost have a responsibility now in all of this, don't you, Justin? Like, welcome to the being front and center and being part of this change. You know, you're 100% right. And I keep having the conversation with my wife. I'm like, I'm teaching full time. I'm coaching high school hockey. I'm driving tonight. My son plays baseball for Great Lakes Canadians in London, and I'm driving there and I'll spend five hours in London. But we have time and I... I just feel it's a responsibility. And you know what? It gives me a little shot in the arm too. I think sometimes we get like an adrenaline rush or just gives us new life when we have the opportunity to help other people. And, uh, and I think that's great. And with this program, what we were talking about, just last thing to wrap up on it, we were saying we can use AAA teams in our community to help lead these things and go back and be volunteers on ice and with the community so they can see BIPOC communities and underserved communities and what it takes. And not everybody has this affluent beginning to get into hockey. So uh, it's a multi-purpose plan. And I hope we can change hockey culture by having kids that are involved in hockey right now, see what it looks like. It takes courage to stand up and speak out. Uh, I admire you greatly for that. This has been a fantastic conversation and uh, I'm happy to have more of them for whatever little role our platform can play to help move these conversations along and, and help this change that I agree with you, the game is ready for. Uh, let's do it. Thanks a million for being a part of the OHL podcast, Justin. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Logan Anderson, host of the Say the Damn Score podcast. On my show, I deep dive into the sports broadcasting business by, you guessed it, talking to sportscasters. The show has featured big names like Bob Costas, Kenny Albert, and Vern Lundquist, as well as many up-and-coming broadcasters who you may not know yet, but you will know soon. Whether you're looking for professional development as a sportscaster, different career paths, or if you just want to be entertained by hearing some of the best storytellers in the world tell their own stories, this podcast is for you. You can subscribe to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit our website, saythedamnscore.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.